Hey guys, welcome to Unleashed. I'm your host, Brent Henderson, and this is episode number one. Ah, I hear the crowd roar. Hey, I am so glad uh, that you are going to be joining us for this episode. Um, episode one is going to be kind of cool because we're going to go um, each week, we're going to take you to someplace like in the wild somewhere. And what I'll do each week is I'll take you from some crazy place around the earth where I've done some stupid thing, which is not uncommon for me, but then we'll bring it back to the home front, you know, the place where we all live. So we take these crazy things from the outback, lessons learned, bring them back, apply them to where we are now. And uh, I think you're going to find this really an interesting journey. Um, it's going to uncover a lot of stuff. I think you're going to grow a lot. I think you're going to love it. Anyhow, with that, let's get started. So today's episode, uh, we're going to go uh, across the ocean. We're going to go over to South Africa. Um, there was a, a story, you know, years ago uh, that a buddy of mine used to tell about a park ranger by the name of Harry Woolhutter. It was in the early 1900s. And Kruger National Park, when it was being mapped out originally, um, you know, they would ride on horseback and they would kind of, you know, mark everything down and the rivers and kind of diagram everything. Well, as he was going up this, this uh, dried up creek bed with his horse and his dog bull, he came around a bend. He came around a bend, and what lions do is they, they hunt in pairs. You have one lion that absolutely wants you to either you know, see it or smell it because it wants you to panic and go the other direction, and that's exactly where the other lion lies in waiting. So as he's riding up this, this creek bed with his dog, he comes around the corner of this, this uh, bend, and there's the one lion that they can see, absolutely. The horse bucks up, throws him off, and when it does, there was another lion up on the hillside in the long grass. It jumps off this hillside, goes after the first horse. He's on the ground. His dog is still with him, and the lion takes off after this first horse. Well, not realizing that there was a second lion at first, he tries to get himself together, but before he can do anything on the count of one. I mean, this, this other lion's on top of him. I mean, these things are huge, 600-pound male lion. And, and uh, you think about this. You know, they've got four canines, and if you were to take your first finger and hold it up, they've got four of those. That's how big they are. Uh, these things are, are you're monstrous. And before he can do anything, the lion grabs a hole, bites down into his shoulder, paralyzes his entire left upper body. He really can't do anything. And so this lion is dragging him across this dried-up creek bed. And I want you to think about, it's, it's kind of like probably how you're your uh, house cat would maybe, if it caught a mouse, just kind of dragging it away. I mean, that's the size kind of a difference almost. So it's, it's dragging him across this creek bed. He can't do anything, and he realizes the power of this lion, that if he lets this lion know that he's trying to fight back, if he's alive or whatever, this lion's going to drop him, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill him right now. I mean, it literally is going to be minutes from now until this lion's breath smells like him, right? So He's being drugged across this thing, and he realizes, i got to do something here, or I'm dead. And he lets his good arm kind of drift down to his side, and he can feel his sheath knife still there. It's still attached to him. He thought it would have fallen off when he got kicked off the horse. And so as the lion is, is taking these steps forward, he times the stride so he can let his arm fall down. He gets a hold of that knife, nine-inch sheath knife pulls this thing out, and as the lion takes a step forward and opens up that whole lung cavity, he takes that knife several times and plunges it up into the lung cavity of this lion. 
Well, of course, he, he immediately drops Harry. You know, this lion is hurting. And when he drops him, Harry takes the knife and gets him in the jugular. Well, now the lion is in bad shape. He goes over into the grass, you know, and he's, he's making all kinds of noise, and he you know, eventually, you know, expires. So there's a lot more to this story, but the whole point of this was Harry realized something. He had to get his thoughts straight or he was dead. You know, so many times we think about fighting back in something, but if we don't have the wisdom and the knowledge to know what to do in the right situations, we really are dead. So he used his brain, um, got himself out of this situation. But what does that, that look like, you know, for us? Well, before we kind of unpack that, I want to tell you the rest of this story. So after hearing this story and reading the book about Harry Woolhutter, I wanted to go back to this location with a buddy. Um, Wade Nolan was a friend of mine. He did a lot of, um, you know, television work for the BBC and um, Discovery and different channels. And he said, I want you to come with me. Let's go to that location. It's a little place called Balule in South Africa, inside Kruger National Park. Now, Kruger National Park, I mean, it's way bigger than you're thinking. It's not just like some normal national park. Literally, if you took Pennsylvania and stood it up on end, that's how big Kruger is. So we took about a week. We were kind of playing around inside the, the uh, park. But we drove to this place called Balule. And when we got there, we went across this. You've got the Timbavati River lines. You've got all these different uh, Limpopo River, different things coming through here. But we got to this place in Balule, and there was no one else there. There was the, the guard at the gate. He let us in. He says, I'm, I'm going home. I'll lock the gate behind you guys. You're here by yourselves. So this is pretty cool. You know, so we, we get our little two-man tent out, and we had, you know, packed some steaks. We had had frozen in a cooler, and we get an ironwood fire going, and it's the coolest thing. I mean, you're sitting there in your, in your lawn chairs, and it's getting dark, and I'm realizing, dude, I'm in Africa. This is so cool. You know, everything in Africa wants to stick here or kill you, right? It's not like just walking into the Indiana, you know, woods here. But we get this, this fire going, and the sun's going down. I look up. And above me, I can see the Iron Cross. You know, you're not seeing the Big Dipper. This is the Southern Hemisphere, totally different. But as we're grilling these, this, this raw meat, these steaks, the smell is like this, this aroma, this potion, and it's going up and it's drifting over top of this fence. Now, this fence, it's not like a, uh, you know, a picket fence, and it's not a massive wall either. It's about an eight-foot-high chain-lake fence with a little bit of barbed wire around the top, which is a little bit unnerving when you think about, you know, this is the home of the Big Five. You know, you've got the rhino, uh, you've got the lion, you've got the Cape buffalo, you've got the elephant, and you've got the leopard. I mean, those things were given the name Big Five for reason because they'll kill you. I mean, they are the most dangerous, you know, game on earth. So this fence isn't really doing a whole lot for the most part, but we're we're going to be all right. We, we know we're, we're all set up, ready for the adventure. And as this smell is going over top of this, this fence, going back into the African bush in this night sky, I start looking through the fence, and it's about maybe eight, nine yards away from me, and I see this, this pair of yellow eyes just looking right through me. And I'm thinking, what am I looking at? And it starts to turn sideways as the, as the glow of this fire you know, is flickering. And I see it's a massive spotted hyena. And these things, I mean, they, they have the strongest bite in all of Africa, and they are way bigger than you're thinking they are. I mean, this thing was huge. And as it turns sideways, you know, I can kind of see his teeth, and I'm thinking, man, this isn't pretty intimidating. If this fence wasn't here, this would not end well. And so this hyena walks up to the edge. You know, he's been smelling the meat. And he lifts his leg and marks his territory right there in front of me on this fence. Now, my buddy Wade looks at me, and he laughs a little bit, and he goes, 
what are you going to do about that? And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to mark my territory. And he kind of laughs. I mean, there's nobody there, right? So I walked down to the edge of the fence where this hyena had, had marked his territory and I marked my territory. Come back and sit down. We kind of laugh about it. And that hyena comes back and marks where I had just marked. And my buddy looks at me and he goes, what are you going to do about that? I said, it's all right. I saved a little. <laughs> so I go walking back down. I'm going to mark my territory again. And I see this hyena getting really nervous. I'm thinking, you know, is he afraid of me? What's the, what's the deal here? And then I can hear it. Maybe maybe a, a quarter of a mile away coming in, I hear this. It's a full-grown male lion. You know, it's time. You know, these things hunt at nighttime, and they can see so well. They know exactly how to not be seen, heard, or smelled. I mean, that's the whole game right there. And so this thing's coming in. The hyena gets nervous, and he doesn't want any part of this lion, so he's gone. Why did that hyena, you know, with the strongest bite in all of Africa, this is a solo male lion coming in. Now, why was he so freaked out and wanting to get out of there? Because he knows that a lion will never, ever, ever bow to a hyena. And here's the deal. Jesus will never, ever bow to the enemy. So what relevance does that story have to do with what we're going to be talking about? Well, there's three words that I want you to remember, and they're identity, identity, and identity. In the beginning of my book, uh, The Roar Within, which was with Baker Books, came out maybe a year and a half ago. I start off in the book and I say, Oh, the power revealed the first time the lion cub roared and understood who he really was. You see, a lion cub doesn't get that roar from how many kills it makes, right? The maker of the universe that created that lion gave that lion his roar, not by all the things that he had done, but the maker gave that identity, that roar to that lion. And the same thing happens with us. It's called imputed righteousness. I don't earn my good enough, right? There's no way because, you know, the Bible talks about how, you know, our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We can't earn our good enough. So what God realized he needed to do was to sacrifice his one and only son um, to take my place from my sins um, so that I could have eternal life with him in heaven so I can be forgiven. So we don't earn that righteousness it's a free gift that comes from our Father. It's imputed. He puts it in us. So my one true identity, like I was talking about, identity, identity, identity. Now, we get our identity from all kinds of things, right? You know, how big your muscles are, how much money you make, what your wife looks like, what kind of car you drive, what's your education, your job title. We get our identity from so many different things. But, guys, I want to say something. Your identity will never, ever, ever come from all of those things. It may be what you do. But who you are, the most important thing you will ever know is that you're good enough. Your righteousness comes the moment that you ask for forgiveness of your sins. You receive him as Lord and Savior, and he puts his good enough, his promised Holy Spirit in you. You know, Ephesians chapter 1 talks about that. You know, it says the moment that we truly believe, God puts his promised Holy Spirit inside of us, guaranteeing our inheritance into the kingdom of heaven. It's that simple. It's a done deal when we give our life to him. And the enemy doesn't want you to know that you possess the roar within. The roar within being Christ in you, that being your one true identity. You know, that verse, I was trying to think, it's Ephesians 1, if I remember right, 1, 13 and 14, I believe. Here, let me, let me look it up for a second here. Um, yeah, 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now listen, it says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So that's my one true identity. That's your true identity. When you believe in him, he gives you his good enough. He gives you his promised Holy Spirit. Um, you know, I don't know if you're like me or not. Like when I'm out in places like that, like in Balule or sitting out there, I can remember that night, you know, after that we ate, I'm just looking at the stars. And if you're like me, you know, I, I ask really deep questions when I'm alone. You know, that's the place where I, I think I can get the most real. Um, you know, I'm not trying to fool anybody. You know, I'm not trying to pose and be something that I'm not. I think in that moment, I'm looking under the stars and I'm saying, God, why am I here? And I think that's what a lot of us ask. You know, we say, you know, why am I here? You know, who am I really, right? Or, you know, what's my purpose? That's a big one I get from guys all the time. You know, how do I know what my purpose is? You know, will I make a difference in this life? I think that's something that we all want the answer to because we all want to know that somehow we're connected to something bigger than ourselves, right? That we have something to give our life to that's more important than we are. It gives us purpose. You know, in my, in my book, The Roar Within, I did an interview with, uh, I've got a, an online uh, private group. It's called um, Unleashed Men. And I had, I don't know how many men, maybe four or 500 men at this time, but I went in and I said, guys, I want to give you like 10 different things that you might struggle with, you know, lust, anger, all these different things. And I want you to give me your top five. And the reason I was doing that is because I wanted to connect these top five man killers that we struggle with to the big five of Africa. Like I said, you know, like the rhino, the lion, all those things. And the answer that I got back, I was really blown away with because I I figured, you know, it's probably going to be maybe lust is going to be number one for guys their number one man killer or, you know, or anger. I mean, that, I mean, if you're like me, I mean, you know, as much as I love God and I, you know, I try to, you know, do all the right things, um, I still struggle sometimes. You know, somebody pulls out in front of me in their car and, you know, they tells me I'm number one or whatever. And I'm like, wait a second, I didn't even do anything. You know, what is your deal? And so we begin to struggle with stuff like that, right? So I'm thinking, you know, it's got to be anger, lust. Well, it blew me away. The number one struggle that all men say they identify with the most was lack of purpose. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see it coming at all. I'm thinking, really, lack of purpose? Yeah, because you think about it. When, when a man lacks purpose, does he get bored? Yeah. Does he get angry? Yeah. Does his mind get idle and, and, and all of a sudden he's, he's lusting because he's got that, that, you know, that playground in his mind? The enemy comes in and starts messing with you? Yeah. It's a dangerous thing when a, when a man doesn't have purpose because he'll try to find it in everything else. He'll try to find it in women, fighting, uh, porn, money, whatever it is. So that's why I said identity, identity, identity. It's all about identity. But here's the thing. Most of us, we're not really taught that, are we? Um, you know, we're taught it's, it's everything else. You know, how well you perform. You know, what sport did you play? You know, were you at the top of your game? Do you have trophies? Do you have awards? Were you known for that? Whatever. And that's one of the biggest struggles that we, we find ourselves is trying to impress other people by our performance. And in one of our, our future uh, podcasts, I'm going to talk about this. We call it the big lie. And the big lie simply says that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth. And that is the big lie because that's what we, tr- we try to get our identity from, by how well I perform and by what you think about me. Because if I, I think that I've performed well and I've got your good opinion, 
then I can feel pretty good about myself. But the problem with performance and getting other people's opinion to, to get our identity from, what happens when you don't perform well? What happens when someone doesn't like you? It just sets you up for failure. But see, when my identity is in Christ, there's nothing I can say or do that can make God love me more. And there's nothing I can say or do that can make him love me less. Because God's love is always complete. And a man's biggest question when you go back, I, I remember it was, I think it was 19, was it 99 when a book came out? It was around that time. I mean, I, many of you probably read this. It was a book called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And it rocked my world. I remember he said in that book, you know, that a man's biggest question in this life is, do I have what it takes? You know, am I enough, basically? You know, in that moment when I'm called upon to come through, can I, will I? You know, do I have what it takes? And so where does he say that we take our question? We take it to Eve. We take it to the woman. Because if she thinks I'm enough, then I must be, right? And so then that becomes the game that many men play. You know, if I can just get that woman's attention by my performance, you know, how I look or how much money, whatever, then somehow I have more worth and value. I'm more of a man. And that becomes a trap that we can all fall into. That's why you have to know that your one true identity will always come from the, from the maker of the universe. And it only comes the moment that you give yourself to him and he puts his promised Holy Spirit inside of you. So let's, let's unpack that for a second. So I'm talking about my one true identity. You know, Brent, can you show me a verse somewhere that talks about, you know, where my identity comes from? Uh, let's go to, let me think, 1 Thessalonians, I think it's 5.23, 5.24. It says, Now may the God of peace um, himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit, now listen to this, may your spirit and soul and body, those three parts, be preserved complete without blame. That's important, without blame, sinless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. He will also bring it to pass. So, you know, we've identified three things here that Paul is saying. We have three parts, not two parts, not one part. We're made up of a body. That's a thing we can see, Right? We have a soul. Now, our soul, that's not the eternal part of you. Your soul is where your mind, your will, your thoughts, your choices, your emotions all are. We all know what that is. But the core of who you really are, that's your spirit. Like, think of it like being small s until Christ comes into you, and now your core, capital S, is Christ in you. His spirit in your spirit is now your one true identity. And so Paul, you know, I love I love some of the stuff he talks about because he knows we're going to struggle with understanding that there's three parts, especially when, you know, Paul came from this whole performance-based thing. You know, he, he was a lawman's lawman. It was all about keeping the law, doing all the right things on the right days, eating the right things. But Paul, I mean, he's my hero. When I think about, you know, biblical heroes, it's got to be Paul. Um, he was a lawman's lawman, but he has an experience with the living God. You know, he's, God speaks to him. You know, he knocks him off a horse. He's blinded, all these things. I mean, I don't know about you, but if God did that with me, he would have had my attention real quick. But Paul was known. His identity was in the performance-based, works-based stuff. And that can happen to a lot of us too, right? I'm telling you, when you discover grace, sorry to take a left turn here, but when you discover the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel of grace, not the gospel of performance, everything, everything in your life's going to change. It just is. But Paul goes on and he talks about, you know, we're going to have a struggle. When, when we begin, begin to understand this, he talks about in, um, 
is it Ephesians 6, where he talks about the flaming arrows, where the enemy is shooting these at us. So let me, let me process with you for a second, process this. So can the enemy mess with your flesh, your body? Yeah, we know he can. You know, we have sickness in this world. We have all that stuff. We know that. What about that, that next layer we talked about, which is your soul, your mind, your will, your emotion, your thoughts? Can the enemy mess with your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, how many of you guys just had an unhealthy thought today? Think about it just for a second. I mean, luckily, when I'm not sitting beside you telling me everything, but yeah, you had it. It could have been lust of money, lust of women. It could be whatever. You could have been angry over something, but the enemy, what he'll do is he'll shoot those flaming arrows, hit that thought at you, that unhealthy thought that you're probably blaming yourself for thinking you're not good enough, not realizing the enemy is the one that put that thought in your head to get you to go somewhere with your thoughts that if you were on your A game or you know in your right mind, you would never go there. And he knows exactly when to do that too, right? You've had a bad day. You come home. You want to be with your wife. She gets disrespectful about something. The next thing you know, it turns into a fight. You're in different rooms. I mean, the enemy, he's the master at this. I hate him. I really hate him. And that's one of the things, guys, you're going to be learning in these podcasts is how do we fight back against this kind of stuff? So we know he can mess with our body. We know he can mess with our mind. But here's my next question. Once you're a believer in Jesus Christ and your identity is found in him, can the enemy mess with your spirit? Absolutely not. I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to imagine like you're in a, in a, in a big hall, right? And it's pitch black. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. The lights are all up. It's dark. And someone walks in and they flip that light switch on. In that moment, darkness must flee, right? It's the same thing inside of you, this darkness, until Christ came in. And then darkness must flee because where the Spirit of the Lord is, the enemy is not going to be at your core. That's where God is. Darkness and light are not going to be in that same place. That is your one true identity. That's where your good enough comes from. That's the dangerous truth that every man needs to know. Let me, let me give you one more verse. Uh, let me go with Romans. It's in Romans 3.22. It says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Let me say that again. This righteousness, right, righteousness, no sin, from God, because it doesn't come from us, we can't earn it, comes through faith, not works, in Christ Jesus. And who's it good for? All who believe. So as I kind of start to kind of wrap this thing, you know, towards an ending here, I want to take you back to Luke 6 just for a second. I want to go back to the message paraphrase on this. It's uh, 643 to 45. It says, you don't get wormy apples off a healthy tree, nor good apples off a diseased tree. The health of the apple tells the health of the tree. You must begin with your own life-giving lives. It's, now listen, who you are, not what you say and do that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. That is so important to realize that it's, it's not what I say and do that counts, right? Because it's, it's never going to be good enough, even on my best day. And I, you know, I talked about in, imputed righteousness, you know, Christ putting his good enough in me. There's something called imparted righteousness. And that's where he gives you the ability. The Holy Spirit gives you the ability to go and do those good things because you wouldn't choose them on your own. See, sin always has an immediate payoff. That's why we choose to go there. It feels good. 
The flesh wants that. But having the Holy Spirit inside of us, when we can tap into our one true identity, our roar within, as I always call it, now he gives that, that good enough inside of me the ability to brim over so that I'll go do good words and deeds. So I can't even claim it for myself. He's the one that, that, that caused me to do it in a good way. So let's kind of take this back now. We went from the wilds with the lion story. We kind of went through a little bit of scriptural stuff here. I want to bring it back to the home front. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you guys have ever gone through counseling. You know, I, I've spent tens of thousands, you know, on counseling. I've been a counselor for years or, in, in, you know, um, in ministry and, and coaching. And it's, it's those aha moments sometimes, and we don't see them coming, that, that help turn that key, you know, to unlock something we've really been struggling with. And I had a guy come to my office one day, and he came walking in, and I, uh, you know, I said, you know, basically, you know, how can I help you? And he said, hey, he says, um, my wife kicked me out. Um, I got caught with, uh, uh, she was basically a, a stripper, prostitute. Um, not saying that they're one and the same. I don't know. But this, in sense, that's what it happened to be. And uh, she kicked him out of the house. The, the wife did. Told the girls, told the parents, the in-laws, everything. And he, he was full of shame when he came walking in, of course. And he said, I'm not allowed to go back home until I get hope from a, a Christian coach or a you know, counselor. And I said, well, man, sit down. And the first thing I said to him, you know, rather than, you know, saying, what caused you to do that? Or, you know, like so many of us, just stop it. You know, the old Bob Newhart, just stop it. Um, you know, I went back and I said, first of all, I want you to know something. I'm sorry that you bought into that lie that made you feel like that was the thing you needed to do. I, I mean, I understand we all have temptations. I said, but what I want to do, rather than kind of focus on the sin, you know, the, the action that you did, I want to come back and I, I want to do a couple of things. You know, cognitive therapy, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, it's the thought that creates the emotion, the emotion creates the action, right? Whatever you're thinking makes you feel a certain way, and then that's what causes you to go and act. But it's your belief system that shapes how you think. Does that make sense? Yeah, what you truly believe is what's going to shape how you think. So I was really more concerned with that. And I said, so let me ask you a question. And I, I do this a lot when I'm, when I'm working with someone. I said, uh, you know, do you have any, you know, religious, spiritual beliefs at all? And he said, yeah. He said, I do. And I'm not going to tell you, you know, on here what, you know, denomination or anything he was back, uh, 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 he was from. You know, he was, he was Christian. But it was a very, I'll tell you this much, it was a very, very works-based uh, theology. In other words, you have to do good in order to be good, uh, which, by the way, you know, any time that we lean on our works um, other than what Christ did on the cross, you know, that's, that's committing adultery against Jesus Christ. I don't know how else to say it. But so he, he sat there. He said, yeah, I, I have some beliefs. And I said, all right. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think there can be any sin in heaven? And he said, no, I don't. I said, I, I agree. I said, so in other words, God must be pretty righteous, right? I mean, on a, like no sin. He says, yeah. I said, so if there can't be any sin in heaven, how righteous do you think God would be? Like on a 10 scale, 10 being the highest. He said, well, I, I mean, he'd have to be a 10. I said, I agree. I said, after what you did, you know, with this, you know, this uh, affair and this stuff, I said, how righteous do you think you are right now? And he went, ooh. He said, maybe a two. And I'm thinking, dude, how'd you get to be a two? I think like with all of my stuff in my entire life, I'm probably like a negative 10 million, right? And he says, yeah, I might be a two. And I'm like, okay, this guy is not really understanding righteousness yet. I said, all right, so if there can't be any sin in heaven, because God's a 10, right? You have to be that righteous. Can't be any sin. And you're only a two out of that 10 scale? I said, how are you ever going to make it into heaven? And he looked at me and he said, 
try harder? He still wasn't understanding righteousness. And so I, I said, hey, let me, let me tell you a little story. I said, so this guy dies and he goes to heaven. And he gets to the pearly gates and there's St. Peter there. And he goes, hey, St. Peter. He goes, uh, how many points do I have to have to get into heaven? And St. Peter goes, I don't know. How many you got? He says, well, um, he says, you know, I, I delivered meals on wheels as a teenager with my dad one time. And he says, you know, then when I got older, you know, I, I volunteered to help, you know, with the Cub Scouts and Weeblows. And he goes, eh, I'll give you one point. The guy's like, one point? So he starts coming up with everything. He says, you know, I taught Sunday school for years. I became an ordained pastor. He's coming up with everything he can think of. And St. Peter's like, yeah, I'll give you another point for that. And about that time, some other guy had died and walks right past both of them in, into heaven without even stopping, right? No collection of points, nothing, no questions. And this guy is livid. And he looks at St. Peter and he goes, how many points did that guy have? St. Peter goes, I don't know. He's not playing this game. <laughs> but that's exactly what we do, right? Somehow we think that we have to do all these things in order to be good enough. Is it important that you do good things? Well, of course it is. But you need to understand that righteousness that what God gave you, that's what enables you to go and do that so that your true being now brims over into true words and deeds. It's nothing that comes of your own. It's that free gift that he gave you of his spirit in your spirit, enabling you to produce good fruit. So, you know, if I come back to the very beginning of this today, what's the three words we talked about at the beginning? Yeah, identity, identity, identity. That's the most important thing I'm going to have for you today. This is episode one. That's, that's going to be the foundation for all of this stuff now. So if there's one verse I want you to go back and remember, put this to mind, Romans 3.22. This is the dangerous truth, right, that every man needs to know, that this righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. You see, when a man knows who he is in Christ, that he's been created in the image of the living God, when he is no longer held captive by the opinions of others or cares whether he lives or dies, that man is now extremely dangerous. Not dangerous for bad, but dangerous for good because he's been unleashed. You know, we had a, a question come in. You know, Eric, producer over here, Eric Foley. Eric, I'm just kind of curious. I was thinking about this. You're not related to Matt Foley, are you? <laughs> he lives in a van down by the river, folks. No, this is episode one. Eric, you know, we, we came together on this and said, you know what? We want this message to be heard. We want to see men's lives being changed. So we're going to be taking questions, you know, like every week. Um, and we had a sports question come in uh, already. And the question was, Brent, how old would you had to have been in your prime? I, I used to love to play baseball and softball and everything. How old would you have had to have been in your prime to beat Bo Jackson? What age would he have to be in order for you to be able to beat him in, when you were in your prime? And I think I figured it out. He wouldn't be able to walk anymore. Man, he was a beast. He was a total animal. But anyhow, if you've got questions you want to you know, email in, whether it's you know, questions about God, questions about just funny stuff you know, we can talk about, you can send those to um, podcast at unleashed.men. That's the website. The actual website is unleashed.men, but you'll be able to get a hold of us through podcast at unleashed.men. So anyhow, uh, man, I hope you guys had a great time this first uh, one. I know I did. I can't wait to be back with you the next time. And we're going to go from the wilds back to the home front. And uh, guys, remember... We are the resistance.